Go ahead and open up your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. I'll give you a little bit of time to get there. Today I'd like to talk to you about something that I consider myself to be very, very, very proficient in. Uh, I've been studying this my whole life and consider myself to be an expert, perhaps. Uh, I can't, however, take sole credit for this because I've had a lot of mentors and examples. People have come alongside of me and encouraged me, but sadly, in all the wrong sorts of ways. And sadly, I'm not any more of an expert in this topic than any of you. Today, we're going to be talking about sin. Have you ever stopped, taken just a moment, and pondered when the first time you sinned was? Like, not the first time that your parents might have told you a story about when you were young and you couldn't remember, but when was the first moment, the first time that you can just look back on your life and recall that first time that you sinned consciously, that you knew it was wrong, and yet you did that anyways? I was pondering that for myself over this past week, and I, I came to the conclusion that first grade, grade was a very formative year in the in sin department for me. I was looking back on first grade, and I remember going to the, uh, a local gas station, stealing a pack of cigarettes with my brothers, going into the woods, and smoking some cigarettes. We knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. And I, I remember knowing that we were hiding. Like, there's all these cues. I didn't know, know everything going on, but I knew it was wrong. And uh, so that happened in first grade. There was another day for us in, in first grade. There's just a lot of stories I could tell you. and We could spend all morning, and that's not the point. Uh, but in first grade, uh, I remember we'd like going and checking the mail. My girls liked doing that for us, too. And one of us had gone and checked the mail, and it was like the most miraculous mail day ever because some company decided to do a marketing ploy and send out a sample pack of cookies to our mailbox and this is like the perfect crime my mom did not know that we received these cookies in the mail so she would never miss any of these cookies at all and so my brothers and I we all divvied them up and we all ate the cookies before my mom ever knew that we had any cookies that's not the worst part of this story, or best, depending whether you're young or old looking at this. It didn't take long for us to connect some of the dots and figure out that if there was a marketing pack of sample cookies in our mailbox, where might there also be other sample boxes of cookies that no one else knows are there? My brothers and I proceeded to canvas the entire neighborhood <laughs> and took it on ourselves, and I want to note this, that that day we saved countless lives of many diabetics in our neighborhood. <laughs> but even going beyond that, first grade, I was thinking back even further beyond that, and I was thinking back to, to when I was about four, year old, four years old or so, uh, my mom was super mean. Forgive me, mom, if you're watching today. She made us eat our vegetables. She was a loving mom. She made us do things that we didn't want to do otherwise. She made us to sit down at the table, clean our plate, and we could not leave the table until our vegetables were completely done. And this was just like the worst thing ever for us. Uh, you know, my brothers and I, we, we resorted to all sorts of creative ways of trying to digest these vegetables. 
Brussels sprouts, we'd like peel them down until they were swallowable size, so you could just chug them with some milk. Surprised none of us died from eating vegetables, literally, from trying to do this. Just chugging them, not chewing at all. Like, you just whatever can, you, you can do to, to not, not taste the vegetables, you would do it. You know, we did the classic thing, too, where we start accidentally dropping them on the floor, but then my mom would check our uh, chairs afterwards and see, and we'd get in trouble. So we picked up on that, and so instead of dropping them under our own chairs, we started uh, to throw them under each other, other's chairs, which was great until by the end of the, the dinner time, everyone still had their vegetables underneath each one of their chairs. So we were desperate. You know, we were trying to figure out what are, what are, you know, what are we going to do this vest- with this vegetable problem that we are faced with. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, I was kind of co- trying to come up with some creative solutions uh, to this problem. And uh, I remember asking my mom, I was like, Mom, can I go to the bathroom? She of course says, yeah, John, you can go to the bathroom. And with all the sincerity that I could muster, I looked my mother in the eyes and let her know that I was so intent on obeying her and finishing everything on my plate that as I went to the bathroom, I was going to bring my plate full of vegetables with me where I would then proceed to finish eating all of that and return to the table. My mother allowed me to go and she allowed me to bring my plate of vegetables with me. That day, I learned the value of double flushing. (laughs) It's really easy for us to look on, you know, these sins in our lives or other people's lives a lot of time, uh, especially these first sins, and think that they're cute. You know, they're kind of adorable. We laugh, you know, and, you know, it's it's just one of those things. It's kind of the way uh, that it is. But I think back to Genesis, the account, the fall of man, Adam and Eve, and they sinned, and, and they, that very first sin, they ate the fruit. And I can't help but think that, you know, when we look back on it, it's really easiest for us just to be like, oh, that's so cute. How could God possibly hate that? What was the big deal because God, you know, that, that caused God to warn them so strongly in chapter 2 of Genesis, saying that this sin will surely lead to death, and then in chapter 3, that caused him to punish them so harshly as a result of that. What was the big deal? What was the issue? I remember back in Oklahoma, we lived at this house, and our front yard was pretty much a horse pasture with a barn. And uh, we, we didn't have a horse at the time, and so we boarded a horse for someone, and that horse happened to be pregnant. And they gave birth to this baby colt. It was the cutest little thing ever, this little colt. We saw it born. We'd go out, we'd play with it, and this colt would come over, and, and it would nibble on our hands, and it would nibble on our clothes, kind of gum you, because it didn't, you know, it just come up, and it was just kind of tickled and all that. And we just thought it was hilarious, thought it was fun. We'd pet it, and it would, like, nibble on us. It was great. My mom said, hey, guys, don't do that. That's bad. And uh, we're like, ah, Mom doesn't know what she's talking about, and so we kept on doing it. And that horse would come up, we'd go and pet it, and it would nibble on us, and we'd laugh, and it was a great time. My mom got us on, on to us again, because, and she said this. I'll never forget. She said, guys, you can't do that because what's cute right now won't be cute later when that horse grows teeth. <laughs> Amen? Amen. It would not be cute any longer. And that's what James 14 1, 14 through 15 says, if you're there already. It says, 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Own desire. We're talking about sin here. What's the source of sin? Temptation and eventually death. Own desire. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Oh, anything when it's just born is cute. Isn't it? Just little baby kittens, they're cute when they're first born, but then we all know what happens later. You know, it's like anything that's little and baby, you look at it just like, oh, and same thing with Adam. Oh, look, it was their first sin. That desire gives birth to sin. But then, the sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When that little child says no, puts his little lip out and pouts and kind of quivers a little bit more, it's kind of cute. It's hard not to laugh. But when that teenager says no, curses at their parents, stomps off, slams the bedroom door and continues on in defiant disobedience, it's not so precious and cool anymore. It may be funny when someone gets drunk for the first time and does something really stupid and everybody laughs at, but it's not so funny when a drunk father can't support his family and beats his wife and children. It's cool to watch movies and listen to music that glorifies violence and rape and murder, but it's not so cool when our lives are affected by violence and rape and murder. Our own desires lead to our own sin, and it leads to our own death. That is the nature of sin. Sin grows up and leads to death. When are we going to start connecting those dots in our lives? Sometimes I wonder how long it took Adam and Eve to really connect the dots. You know, after, after the warning and, uh, of, you know, the sin before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, evil God told them not to and it would bring death. They made that choice to partake in that fruit and afterwards, God, he punished them. He kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. He sent them packing and on their way. And not only that, he told Eve and women that they would have pain and childbirth. And he told Adam and mankind that there would be toil in their work and their labor of the ground. And there would be thorns that would grow up and cursing that. But I can't help but think that after all that, that after God pronounced his punishment and sent them out of the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve kind of like reached over and like squeezed each other and been like, hey, you're not dead. You're still alive. They might have even started thinking, maybe, wow, we might have just dodged a bullet here. You know, I don't know. I'm just conjecturing here. I have no clue what was really going on in their minds. But I can't help but think that they might have thought that they had gotten away with something until that day when one of their sons, Cain, went and killed one of their other sons, Abel. That fruit, which looked so delicious and so enticing, and maybe have been so sweet, probably didn't seem so beautiful and enticing and sweet any longer. It probably left a very different taste in their mouth. They had the knowledge of good, but now they had the knowledge of evil. Sin seems pleasant for a season. They may have seemed like they got away with it at first, but their sin 
had grown teeth, just as God said it would, and it led to death. Sin grows up and leads to death. People, this is, I think, one of the reasons why God hates sin so much. One of the definitions of sin, one of, that, one of the first ones that I heard growing up, was sin is anything that you think, say, or do that displeases God. I think that's a great definition of sin. But I think it's incomplete. If we just take it as it is, you know, sin could just be anything that goes against the whim that God has for that day. You know, God might be having, you know, it might be one of those peanut butter and jelly, but it has to have banana kind of days. And if you do anything different, it's sin. Sin is not displeasing to God because it goes against a whim or just like he's a tyrant ruler or anything like that. Why does sin displease God? It's because God is a God of life. God is the giver of life. God is a God of love. God is a God of hope. These things bring God glory and make him happy. Sin literally means to miss the mark. Like a target, you've probably heard this many times before. It literally means to miss the mark, like a target that you're aiming at with uh, an archery or with a spear and you're throwing at it and it falls for short, falls short. Romans 3.23 tells us what the mark is. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That verse has always seemed like kind of ambiguous in my mind. What does that mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means that sin falls short of who God is and what he wants for his people. Feel free to interact with me for just a moment here. Who is God? Who is God? How would you describe God? What is his character? Faithful. Almighty. Love. Creative, I think. What was that? Just. Caring. Holy. We could keep going. On and on and on. God is holy, good, life, righteous, loving, merciful, gracious, kind. He's a provider. He's our hope. He's faithful. He desires a relationship with his people. I can see why sin would make God upset if that is who God is. What does God want for his people? God wants the same things for us. That Who he is, he wants for us. That's why we need a relationship with him. Because he wants his people to have love and joy and peace. He wants his people to be righteous and holy. He wants them to have good things. He wants them to be hopeful. He wants them to be kind, to have eternal life. No wonder God hates sin. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that displeases God, but the reason it displeases God is because it goes against his glory. It falls short of who he is and what he wants for every single one of us. Second thing, I think we all know this too. If you've been in a church for very long, we know that not only does sin grow up and lead to death, we know that we have all sinned. After World War II was done, there was the Nuremberg trials. There were military tribunals 
where they went and they found the war criminals from Nazi Germany. Uh, they rounded them up. They didn't catch them all immediately after the war. And there was one man in particular who was notorious. His name was Adolf Eichmann. It took many years. He had fled. I think he, they found him in Argentina and finally brought him back and, and put him on trial. Uh, but as part of that trial that they had set up for this man who was one of Hitler's worst uh, lynchmen, he was, he was the worst sort of minion for Adolf Hitler. He was responsible for sending millions and millions of Jews to the concentration camps and to their deaths. During his trial, though, there was one particular woman. Her name was Hannah Arendt. And she was a, an American Jew who was born in Germany. She was a political theorist. Uh, she was arrested by the Gestapo in Germany during, uh, right at the beginning of the war there, but ended up fleeing. But she was invited to go to the, to the trial of Adolf Eichmann, to go in to witness that. And she was a little apprehensive. She was, you know, she was, you know, wanted to go and see as being a Jewish woman. She wanted to go and see these proceedings of this trial, see who this man was, to see who this monster was who could commit such a great atrocity against fellow humans. This is what she observed. Hannah Arendt says, The trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him, and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were and still are terribly and terrifyingly normal. From the viewpoint of our legal institutions and of our moral standards of judgment, this normality was much more terrifying than all the atrocities put together. Hannah expected to see a monster, but the terror that she witnessed was far worse, that of seeing a perfectly normal person. What she witnessed was the depth of sin that the Bible says resides in every one of us. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. And there is no one who does what is good, not even one. Romans 3, 23 succinctly states that and says, we have all sinned. Psalm 51.5 says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when, when my mother conceived me. There was no point in which we were not guilty of sin. We were born into sin. And our desires and the, the decisions that we make sin, cause sin and lead to death. When witnessing, this is one of the very hardest things to convince people of is their own sinfulness. And just for the record, I don't think this is our responsibility to convict someone else of their sinfulness. God has given us the law and the prophets. He gave us Jesus Christ himself. And he has given people the church, the world, the church, so that we can be reflections of God's love in the world. And seeing that allows the Holy Spirit to work and bring conviction. But for some reason, I think it's easier for, for the world and even sometimes as us as Christians to contemplate and look into the world and we see the sinfulness. You don't have to turn the TV on for more than a couple of minutes and no matter what you watch, you see the, the sinful of man, man, whether it's in wars, whether it's 
uh, in greed and the commercials that we watch or whether it's in the TV shows that are coming on and the things that are portrayed and glorified. We sin. We see sin all around us. And it is so easy for us to see that sin, but for some reason it's easier for us to see that sin and assume the sinfulness of everyone else with the exception of ourselves than to assume that the whole world is sinful, including oneself. This is the thing is I'm a sinner by every standard that there is. We know that we are sinners by God's standard. You know, how can we not think about being angry towards someone else? How can we even just stop having lustful thoughts? God's standard is high. He has a high bar of who he is and what he wants us to be because that he has the best standard that he wants us to enjoy. C.S. Lewis said, our problem is not that our desires are too great as humans, it's that they're too low. We have settled for the desires that, that sin can f- fulfill in our lives, and we have settled for something far less than God has for us as Christians. We have settled for too little. And so God's bar for what he, who he is and what he wants for us is high. And that's why God's standard seems so difficult for us as humans. God's standard says uh, in Mark 7, it says, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of evil things come from within, and they defile a person. All evil things come from within us, not from without. That's the easy thing is to look out in the world and think it's everyone else's problem. If we just educate more, if we just give more money, if everyone's equal in this way or that or the other, and those things are all bad. But the problem with sin, and it's never going to go away until it's dealt with in our own hearts and our own lives. This is the clincher is when we're, we're talking to each other about sin. We're not just a sinner by God's standard. We are a sinner by our own very, very low standards. You are a sinner by your own standard. Did you know that? James 4, 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I haven't met anyone yet who hasn't been able to admit that there was something, some point in their life that they knew was the right thing to do, that they consciously decided not to. We can't live up to God's standard. We can't even live up to our own standards. And yet somehow we dismiss the problem of sin in our own lives and think it's true of everyone else except of us. Sin grows up and leads to death. We have all sinned. But this third point I really want you to listen to is that death is the present reality that those without Christ live in. Death is the present reality that those without Christ live in. See, death is not just this future reality That when we die physically, you know, that we experience. Or when God ultimately condemns and his wrath is poured out on on evil and sin and and destroys that for eternity. Death is not just a future reality. Death is man's current state without God. Death is the current state of men and women without God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says this, And you were dead. In your trespasses. 
Paul's talking to Christians and saying what they were without Christ. You were dead. You were living in death. You weren't alive at all. You thought you were alive, but you weren't. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. You were dead. John 3.18 is another one. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. They're they're already living in death. They are already living in condemnation. Your sin has already condemned you to death and hell. And without Christ, you are already there. That's not not a reality that's waiting to come. This is where where we without Christ, the world without Christ, is living in the present. Jonathan Edwards... Some of you might know his name. He was a great revivalist, a preacher in, during the American Great Awakening. And he wrote a super famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The guy was really smart. He did a really good job of showing God's righteous anger and wrath and how it is warranted is going to be poured out on, on sin and evil once and for all. But within this sermon, he gave an illustration He said, he painted a picture of God holding sinners over the pit of hell and damnation and judgment for eternity. He kind of described it like someone holding a spider that was connected to a string and was dangling them there over judgment. I think the point he was trying to make, I think, was warranted. But the picture always kind of bothered me a little bit. That picture bothered me because it made, made God seem like he was kind of playing with. You know, just imagine another little kid. Imagine back to first or second grade. Little boy just, you know, dangling something that is alive over a flame of fire. And we'd look at that and we'd say, that's not right. Stop toying with it. That's, that's messed up. And that's always kind of how it, you know, it came across in my mind. It was like, is that the God? Is that the loving and merciful God? that is painting and painted in Scripture, that has come to save the world. Do Scripture say that we are alive, being threatened with death, as that picture leads us to believe? Or do Scripture say that we are dead, but being offered hope of new life? Are we alive, being threatened with death? Or are we dead, being graciously and mercifully offered the hope of new life. Is God dangling us or is God mercifully scooping us out of where we already are? Our sin has already condemned us to death and damnation and hell for eternity. That's where we are already living, and it's only God's loving message of the gospel that offers us this new life, that offers to scoop us out of our current state. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says this. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
Because the law of the spirit of life of Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is a law of sin and death. The law of sin and death says that sin leads to death. We are living in a state of death. If there is a string that is holding us, it is not a string, it is a chain, and is not attaching us to God, it is attaching us to death and condemnation. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's righteous requirements could be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to flesh but according to the spirit. What we could not do, what the law could not do, God did by sending his own son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. We were tied, not up, we were tied down to death. And the bonds that Jesus, God has offered to cut and tear and, and take away are those bonds that condemn us to death that we are currently living. That is the grace and the mercy and love of our Heavenly Father. Two of my favorite verses about the heart of God that I think should be in the forefront as we as we are motivated to go and witness, and as we witness and share the gospel, are these. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Does that sound like a God who is threatening, threatening people? Or does that sound like a God who is graciously scooping people? Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's not God's threatening of danger and death. It's his kindness that comes down and scoops us from where we are. So sin grows up and leads to death. There's nothing cute about it. We have all sinned by God's standard and by our own standards. And death is the present reality that those without Christ currently live in. Does that change how you see God? Does that change how you see the gospel? And does it change how we present the gospel? And does it change how we live? I hope so. Because God didn't just rescue us from a future possibility, but from a present reality. We were dead, but now we are alive in Christ. We were once darkness, but we are now light in the Lord. And God tells us we need to live as children of light.